From WUFTFM, this is Animal Airwaves Live, our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm Dana Hill, and I'm really happy you could tune in here on this Friday, September 15th, and I'm very, very happy to welcome back my guest from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine, who's been here many times before, and I always enjoy having him because our discussions are always interesting, and today the topic is one that we've never had before on this show, so that is always exciting too. So let me welcome you back to the show, Dr. Daryl Hurd. Uh, I'm really glad that you could be here. Great, Dana. It's, it's great to be here as well. So. Today, we're going to be talking about alligators. And this is, I can't believe it's taken so long, uh, but uh, it's finally the day. These are amazing animals. And I think that they're especially revered in these parts for obvious reasons. But there is a lot about them to admire. Uh, and let's kind of start at the beginning if we can. And, and I want to go way, way back. Alligators are ancient animals, right? Well, the, the group that they belong to, I mean, the crocodilians, um, they go back many hundreds of millions of years. Um, they've obviously got a body plan and, and a physiology and anatomy that works well. So why change things? So, But there have been a lot of different, um, just in the fossil records, there's lots of different species. So, you know, the alligator we see today is not necessarily the alligator that was with the dinosaurs, but very similar animals um, from the similar uh, lineages. So who falls into the category of crocodilians? Well, we have the alligators. I mean, it's actually interesting. There's two species. There's one, the American alligator, which is what we see in the southeast. Um, and then there's also another species, the Chinese alligator, which is actually an endangered species and a much smaller species, so the alligators. Um, and then you have the caiman, um, variety of sizes, anywhere from the dwarf caiman, really small, maybe three or four feet, up to the uh, the black caiman, which can get up to 16 feet plus, um, so very big animals. Um, and then you have the traditional crocodiles. So we have the Nile crocodiles um, from Africa, the saltwater crocodiles uh, you know, from uh, Australasia, so northern Australia and Asia. Um, and then there's a couple of other oddities. Um, there's the gharial, which is from uh, northern India and Nepal, um, a freshwater uh, crocodilian. And um, then the false or the gharial, uh, the gavial, which is another um, species as well. So there's quite a variety of, of uh, crocodilians, but there's been actually many, many more species in the history of or in the evolutionary uh, lineage as well. Now, so. I might have missed this, but uh, are they native to Australia? Um, so the ones that are native to Australia, Australia just has the, the saltwater crocodile, which is a lot of popular press um, documentaries about, but they also extend out up, up into Asia. Um, and then there's also a freshwater crocodile that uh, occurs in northern Australia, the Johnson's River crocodile, which is the one that doesn't eat people. Okay. <laughs> it's too small. Okay, good, good to know. Um, when we when we think about uh, these crocodilians, is there any consistency to their habitats? I mean, some yes are saltwater and some are freshwater, but do they need? a specific range of temperatures to be uh, well adapted. Yeah, I mean, many of the species are circumtropical. So, you know, once they get below 50 Fahrenheit, they're uncomfortable. The alligator may be a bit of an exception. Um, and there are some pictures, you know, in of alligators in icy water, although that's not where they, they belong. But they can um, dwell in 
cooler temperatures for a small period of time. But in general, most crocodilians circumtropical and they prefer temperatures up around the 80s, both water and external temperatures. So. Uh, because crocodiles and alligators, these are reptiles, right? Yes, correct. And they are um, cold-blooded and they lay eggs, right? Yes. Uh, and so the alligator that we think of here commonly in Florida, mm-hmm. and, and hold on one second, though. We've got the regular kind of American alligator that we think of. Yes. Uh, but are there any crocodiles in Florida that are native? Well, yeah, there's actually the American crocodile, which is, um, there actually exists, you know, circum-Caribbean, um, but we have a, a population. They're actually a threatened or endangered um, population in South Florida. Their numbers are increasing again, um, and so they're spreading a little bit. But, yes, we definitely have our own um, American crocodile. Is there any particular difference uh, between these crocodilians that thrive in salt water and those that thrive in fresh water? What makes one prefer a particular environment? Well, I mean, like if you look at the salt, the true saltwater crocodile, they can exist in fresh water into brackish water, and they have some physiological modifications to allow that to do that. So obviously if you're ingesting salt water, you need to be able to get rid of the excess salt um, and so they have salt glands, and they can uh, remove in that. Um, and those glands are actually in the tongue, which is kind of interesting. But they can remove salt from their body, so excess salt. So they are adapted to those environments. Um, I don't know whether having one environment over the other um, allows them to, and it gives them a bigger advantage than anything. But most of the crocodilian species would be in fresh water or at most brackish water. Yeah, so in terms of the American alligator that dwells here, even in, I, mean, I bet you we could walk five minutes from where we're standing right now and find an alligator. Uh, they are even on the campus of the University of Florida. And there's a great deal of fear and mystery that surrounds the American alligator. But what do we, what do we primarily need to know? Are these animals that we need to be afraid of or that we need to despise? It's not, not, it's not yeah, definitely not despise. Um, but I think you need to, like with any animal anyway, I, I, I really emphasize respecting the animal and maybe understanding a little bit of their biology, you know. So these animals are not mean or evil, or but they have certain behaviors that they've acquired over evol- you know evolutionary periods. To, and they, most of the, the crocodilians, in fact, all the crocod- present crocodilians are carnivores and they eat whatever they can and catch proportion to their body size. And unfortunately, humans can be in that um, area sometimes. Um, for some reason, I don't see, I mean, the alligators are not as likely as, say, some of the bigger crocodilians from you know, Africa, the Nile crocodiles and the saltwater crocodiles to attack. But nevertheless, there are obviously uh, cases of uh, attacks on people most recently. Um, some of them have been initiated because they alligators see pets like dogs as prey items and then the owners, not you know, surprisingly, try to um, save their animal from the, uh, from the alligator and, and unfortunately get caught up in the uh, in the, me- the melee, if you want to call it that. Yeah, and uh, I think we will talk more about this later in the program, but fundamentally, I and mean, this comes down to uh, a question of, you know, ha- habitat loss and places in which humans 
are where alligators really want to be, and and maybe instances in which alligators have mm-hmm. moved into retention ponds that weren't even there before, but now mm-hmm. th- this has created uh, an ideal environment. But if you wander over to Lake Alice, I suppose there's been alligators in Lake Alice for generations and generations and generations. <laughs> there's all yeah. There's always probably been allig- yeah, alligators there. They'll um, if, if there's a basically if there's a body of water, small or large, in Florida there'll be eventually an alligator will find it. And part of that is because of just the way that they uh, progress from babies to adults is that the adults, the large bodies of water, are taken up by large uh, alligators. And then um, the small ones, um, there is a concerns about cannibalism. They, the bigger ones will eat the smaller alligators. So once they disperse from their nesting site, they have to find water where they live, but they have to find smaller bodies of water. And so they'll often move over quite substantial distances on land. Um, to go to get to those bodies of water, and so that's why you end up with small, you know, crocodiles in swimming pools or retention ponds and so forth. Right, so. right. Okay, so if we just travel back a, a ways to, you know, many, many, many millions of years ago, and the the evolution of these crocodilians, you know, they they found, as you say, they're they found a place where they fit in amongst mm-hmm. all the other different species that survived. Yeah. And, you know, that may have been because there were small ma- small mammals became a thing mm-hmm. that were available to eat and, and whatnot. Yeah. And though I have to imagine that some crocodilians are perfectly pleased to eat fish, given, yes. given where they are. Yeah, so a good example of that is the gharial and some of the long-snouted um, crocodilians, like the slender-snouted crocodile from Africa there. I mean, they eat fish, but they'll eat anything else, basically, they can catch and fit down there, yeah. uh, down their pharynx, basically. <laughs> right. And then so the uh, American alligators that we know and love, they're, they're going to pretty much go after whatever they can get a hold of. And that could be anything that comes near whatever body of water that they're in or something that's living in the body of water itself. Yeah. So they, they come out of the water if, they, if there's an opportunity. I mean, if they're a small mammal, um, they will actually pursue them for short distances up onto land, but they also feed in the water and they're, um, they're whatever comes close to them. Um, an interesting thing is is that the, the alligators, are the, or at least the adult large alligators, the only ones that really have the, the jaw strength to be able to feed on the, some of the freshwater turtles. They can actually um, crack the turtles um, if they get them just right. And we occasionally will see freshwater turtles where you can see basically teeth marks or Yikes. gouges, you know, where the, I think the turtle has sort of been squished out like a watermelon pit, you know. Oh. Um, and fortunately, the, hopefully the the, uh, the turtle was able to get away. Yeah. Um, so these these animals that, that we have, I mean, let's talk a little bit about their kind of life cycle. They're, they're born from their eggs, but let's say that when they're born, uh, when they emerge from their eggs, is there a mother nearby? Yeah, definitely. That's a, and that's the really interesting thing. I do the uh, the veterinary work for St. Augustine Alligator Farm Zoological Park. So I just want to emphasize it's always been a zoo, never farmed, you know, crocodilians. But um, they have bred a variety of crocodilians. And so these a lot of these animals, what they do, they use the heat of a um, nest with vegetation that's been gathered up. Um, to incubate the eggs, um, and then the parents, and they actually with the St. Augustine Alligator Farm, and they've been showing this elsewhere, the female predominantly helps, um, but the male also will protect the the babies in that area that they, they're growing up, and they actually 
some really neat behaviors of, you know, some of the crocodilian species, they will, the adults will take food and offer it to the babies. So mm. they're a lot more complex, I think, than uh, most people think. So. Is, the, is the male alligator tending to his own alligator babies? Well, the, in the normal scenario, there's probably a dominant male and there's probably multiple females within his territory. And so he's probably... Um, protective of those animals in his territory. Um, so definitely if someone comes or an animal comes in or a potential predator comes in, um, he's going to go after them, I would think. But definitely the females are very, very protective. And that's one of the things, you know, respecting the animals. You know, if you're in Florida and you see an alligator nest, you don't want to go near it because there's going to be a female that's going to be protecting it. Is there a particular breeding season? Yes, generally it's in the spring, you know, generally in the warmer months. Um, so you know, April, May into June, um, and obviously the colder months, not so much, you know. And those eggs, they hatch uh, relatively quickly, or they they have to be there for a while? They, they have to be there for a while. I mean, it, it, it's somewhat temperature dependent, you know, but they could be 100 days plus, you know. Oh, really? More. Yeah, so it can quite take quite a while for these eggs to hatch. The other really interesting thing is that the sex of the, uh, off, of the uh, hatchling is determined by the temperature. So, you know, and I, to be honest, I'm a little bit embarrassed. I've forgotten which way it goes. Yeah. But, but females are generally, I think, a little bit warmer um, than the male temperature as well. Interesting. Uh, so can they, you know, mostly if it's in the spring or whatever, then they lay eggs and then these eggs, you know, are kind of out. Now, what? What happens if it's just always really hot and getting hotter all the time? Well, these are questions that are coming up now, you know, as we're – I'm not going to enter a discussion of climate change, but as, you know, Florida gets warmer or the southeast gets warmer, firstly, the range of alligators is going to increase. I suppose that's good or bad, depending on who you are. Um, but at the same time, there are issues with, you know, if the temperature of the nest is going to be warmer – then you end up with all female hatchlings a long, long time. You know, a long time down the line, it's going to be potentially catastrophic for the species if all you've got is females and no breeding males. Yeah. Um, although, if there's a couple breeding males that are in that group, then, then, uh, <laughs> then they, they've got it made, uh, and there'll be lots more alligators. But the, the idea then here that they, these hatchlings emerge, mm-hmm. and... How how vulnerable are they at first? I mean, this is often the case that little hatchlings or small animals of any species really are at their most vulnerable. Well, I mean, yeah, they're, they're very small. I mean, they're, they're easily picked off by animals, even things like, you know, wading birds, you know, great blue herons. I've seen pictures of, you know, picking off little alligators and so forth. And this is where the role of the, the particularly the mother, um, comes in, where she's going to protect these animals, sometimes for several years in that particular area wow. until they get big enough where they're less likely to be predated on um, and they also need to start moving. And she's also hopefully going to protect them from cannibalism from another alligator that's not related that wants to eat them. Right. Uh, and l- let us say then that uh, these uh, hatchlings are, you know, the ones that are surviving, uh, they're going to try to stay close to their mother. Will they know? Will they identify their mother? Yeah, they actually make calls, and and they've shown with crocodilians before they even hatch, 
they, they're making calls and the, the female knows. And so they actually will come up and they'll dig open the nest and they'll pick up the babies and then drop the, take them down to the water and drop them in the water. And then the pet, you know, there's definitely calls that are related to the particular female. Um, so the babies know who their mother is and then they'll just hang out with her. So. Yeah. Okay. And so now then those those babies get watched by this mother for sometimes at a pretty extended amount of time. <laughs> She's going to be very protective of them. Is there some point at which they, the hatchlings, the, the babies, seek some independence? Or does at some point the mother decide, you're on your own? You know, that's a question I don't really under, I don't really know. I mean, at some point they do disperse, as I mentioned, and you'll see you'll see small alligators, as I mentioned, in other you know small bodies of water. So I don't know what the motivation is, um, whether it's the mother that, or the maybe even the, the male in the area may just end up you know terrorizing or drive them away. I don't know. So. While the mother is watching over the young, might she also be reproducing and making more eggs? Um, there is the potential, and that may be the that may be the stage a stage at which she drives away the the other offspring, or she's because she's inattentive to them, and um, they may just wander away. Um, so, yeah, uh, I mean, at some point they become capable of finding food for themselves. Yeah, they actually from the get go. I mean, as I said, I mentioned there is some evidence that the parents can help um, with food sources, but they have to start eating themselves. They do get. Like birds, um, when they when a, a reptile hatches out of the egg, they do have the yolk actually is inside their um, salomic or abdominal cavity, um, and then that's a source of food and actually some of the uh, immunological factors um, that protects the the animal for the first you know couple of months. So there is a there is a sort of a gradual transition over, and then they start pursuing you know they would eat small insects, small fish. Uh, and so forth um, soon after hatching. Yeah. And what, uh, besides maybe some of these birds, what are some other potential predators of small alligators? Well, you know, unfortunately in South Florida, you know, in the Everglades, this issue with the Burmese pythons. Oh. Um, so you see, I've seen plenty of, you know, pictures or videos of of small alligators being eaten by the Burmese pythons and even some, you know, substantial uh, animals. But I don't know, you know, it depends on, the size and other stuff. I think who who actually wins that competition, but that's true. Um, is snakes, um, even some of the big fish that exist in uh, in the water, you know, alligator gars and so forth, would probably pick off some of the the smaller alligators. Snapping turtles, you know, they would also. It's, it's one of those issues that I was talking about. The crocodilians will eat what's proportionate to their size, and some of these other animals. Basically, if it moves, um, it's it's fair game. So. Uh, to the best of our knowledge, are uh, are alligators food for any mammals? Um, yeah, I mean, if they if they uh, you know Florida panther can get a you know grab a, a, a relatively moderate sized alligator that's not going to do too much damage to it. Certainly, certainly, if you have like otters. You know, it probably oh, yeah. would, would eat, you know, small alligators if he could get a hold of them. Um, so I think there's a variety. Pigs, unfortunately, they would take out. I mean, the introduced swine would also take a you know, nest if they get into it, if the female doesn't drive them off. Um, so I, I should have asked this earlier. Where is the nest situated, ideally? It's usually some, I mean, close to the body of water where the female is going to be living. Sometimes you'll, you'll sort of see a, almost a channel up to the, uh, to the nesting site. Um, but yeah, usually close to water. Is it going to be obscured somewhat by some vegetation and, and hidden a little bit? Um, sometimes it can be obvious. It's a mound of you know, an unusually 
uh, built mound out in the middle of you know the swamp or what have you. But yeah, sometimes the vegetation will also hide it in that particular area. Yeah, so. I mean, how do the how do these alligators go about uh, building these mounds? Has this been observed closely? Yeah, they just basically they just grab pieces of vegetation and pull it into a pile. So wow. So they're a lot, yeah, they're a lot more. I mean, they're more agile and this and more. You know, I don't know what you, how you want to describe it, but they, there's a lot more behaviors than you expect from uh, what you usually see them just lying quietly on the side of a really yeah. Know, you know, lake. I, I think that I had the sense that as you know, as as creatures that just lay eggs and uh, so forth, that maybe they weren't as uh, good mothers as the, it turns out they are. Yeah, that's you know, that's what I've also come to. You know, being working with these animals, it's amazing. You know, I can't, I've come to respect them more. Um, I mean, there's the old joke about how small their brain is, and literally, I mean, a big alligator is about the size of a, a walnut, but I tell you what, they use that brain very, very effectively. Um, and there's a lot of other um, adaptations, you know, or anatomical adaptations that make them very suited to the environment in which they live. Um, you know, some of the things that they've got um, many, many what's called mechanoreceptors, the way they perceive the environment um, across their skin, their body. Um, and so they, there was a recent study that showed that alligators in a pond can, they can perceive a drop of water under the pond. So they know what's in the in the water. And then I read another study that was really interesting from South Africa looking at the saltwater, uh, sorry, the Nile crocodiles and showed they actually have taste buds around their teeth. So they have an adaptation where they can open their mouth underwater. There is a flap that prevents water going down to their airway. Um, so they can open their mouth underwater, but not only that, they can grab you or grab something and they can taste it um, and decide whether they actually want to eat it or properly. Unfortunately, once they grab one of us, grab us, yeah. the damage has already been done. So there's a whole bunch of, you know, really cool evolutionary, anatomical, physiological adaptations that they have. And and how much before we take our first break, with the brains being as small as they are, their capacity for probably sophisticated reasoning is limited. But how much uh, of their I mean, their instinct must clearly guide them and, and help them survive. <laughs> this animal's been around for a long time. Uh, their behaviors, are are they consistent across a different species of these crocodilians? Um, for the most part, yeah. I mean, there aren't that many species, as I mentioned, that are living today. And a lot of them do have, I mean, they, they do have very good... Um, you know, they're very able to adapt. They're very able to learn. Um, and so and they've got a wide range of behaviors that you wouldn't expect um, in these animals if just looking at them and looking at the straight-up anatomy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, this is totally fascinating, and I feel like we're just kind of scratching the surface. But I want to remind listeners that this is Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. I'm Dana Hill. My guest today from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Daryl Hurd. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back with more right after this. Stay tuned.
Welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live. I'm Dana Hill. My guest today from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine is our friend, Dr. Daryl Hurd. And we're talking, yes, about gators today, and this is exciting. Uh, Dr. Hurd, when we think about the American alligator, the one that is native here to Florida, the one that listeners uh, might see from time to time, um, are these animals that are pretty safely established? Are their numbers um, pretty good? They're not vulnerable or, or threatened or anything? Well, yeah. I mean, I think they've taken off the, definitely taken off the threatened list. And they, um, from a period, you know, a low point, I think in the 60s and 70s when they were hunted for skins and so forth, um, the population dropped to very small uh, numbers. And now they're actually back up in the millions, you know. So I think they're not threatened other than uh, loss of habitat. So um, there certainly is could be a potential tipping point at some point where, you know, either humans decide they don't want to have alligators in their environment, or just by people flooding the the available environments. And um, and some of those environments are, you know, everyone likes to be near a lake or a pond or or so forth. Is that they, uh, you know, want to build on it, and that's not good for the for the alligators. Yeah, right. I mean these. These uh, bodies of water that we have in Florida, while there's plenty of them, anybody who travels around the state has seen there's a tremendous amount of construction all over. And mm-hmm. and while sometimes cr- construction does create new bodies of water in the form of retention bonds, these are not really like great environments and habitats for alligators. There's probably not a, as much as uh, of what they need as, you know, would really allow them to thrive. Yeah, I mean, that's true. But on the other side of it, I mean, I've noticed, I mean, there is a positive upswing in terms of protecting uh, wetlands in Florida. And so there are more and more areas that are are being protected. So that's that's a positive note. An interesting one was actually, I mentioned the American crocodile. And so their their stronghold now actually is um, with one of the nuclear power plants in South Florida has cooling ponds. Um, and we mentioned that the issue with temperature and so forth is this is where the American crocodiles have done very well. They're bred very well. The, um, the offspring have done very well, and they're spreading out from that area. It doesn't mean that they're, you know, nuclear-powered or they're radiant. Right. <laughs> it's that, not that not sense, but they, they're taking advantage of the artificial warmed waters um, to have a more – to be more productive and to, uh, to grow more rapidly. Yeah, okay. I mean, but – are there instances in which there are run-ins uh, with manatees that are unpleasant, or do they kind of stay away from each other? You know, I don't know about the, the manatees. Somewhat is that's going to be size-dependent. Um, you know, I don't think that the regular alligators would probably go after an adult, you know, manatee. And the American crocodiles, it is a little bit disturbing. Um, so the American crocodile populations were reduced even more so than the alligator back to very small animals and now they're starting to grow up into the sizes where they could probably take people and they definitely the American crocodile has been associated in other parts as I mentioned circumcaribbean and I know in Costa Rica with uh, attacks and so you need to still be respectful and maybe even more respectful of the crocodile just because of temperament and so forth. Yeah, can we talk about that a little bit? Describe the difference between the temperament between an alligator and a crocodile and why it might be different. You know, I don't know the why. Um, There does seem to be a difference in terms of the willingness to attack humans or larger, you know, prey. Um, and But at the same time, we are seeing, you know, people being attacked, as I mentioned earlier on. 
Um, but as I said, I don't have an answer to it. There is a, you know, we're talking about the issue of them being, you know, they, they can learn and adapt. And that's one of the problems with alligators in Florida is people feeding alligators. And so there's the association of food with a, you know, a person and that gets them interested. And then that doesn't take very much for that to cross over where you'll actually get an attack on a human um, with the alligator perceiving they're going to get some food. So. Yeah, I mean, ideally, these are wild animals that will stay wild and they mm-hmm. will be uh, afraid of us, in, in, you know, for lack of a better expression, right? I mean, if, they're, if, if they see people as something they just want to stay away from, that's probably better for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, what sizes do American alligators reach? Yeah, so the, the record, and there's actually, I, I saw some recent, um, you know, numbers, you know, there were some alligators that were shot, I think, in Louisiana and one of the hunts just over 14 feet. And I think the record I've heard is about 14 feet, three inches. So they generally, once they get to a certain size, they generally don't elongate that much. They may just get heavier. So. Yeah, I mean, how heavy will these animals get? Um, anywhere, probably 600, or, I mean, 900 pounds, you know, eventually. So uh, they can get very big. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, alligators famously do something when they hunt that is terrifying to contemplate for for just about anybody who might be near a body of water that they're in. Describe describe how an alligator really overcomes its prey. Well, I mean, this, but I mean, they grab you know whatever prey item and then they drown. They they do what's called a death roll, which is they roll. Um, to tear pieces off or cause damage to their prey item. And then also then you dr- effectively you drown. You know? So if you're a mammal that's pulled into the water, human or otherwise, you, know, um, you end up drowning if you're held underwater long enough, and that's a way that they can subdue um, their prey. So. And, and when they actually consume their prey, uh, are they going to eat the whole thing at once or are they able to save some for later? Yeah, well, that's part, I mean, it's part of the mythology is that they prefer, you know, rotting food. But they do, um, particularly if they're, if they're able to overcome a large uh, prey item, they will stash a portion of the food after they've, they've taken as much of the food as they can fit into their their stomach, they will then go stash that prey item, and unfortunately, it may also be human, you know, under um, you know under branches, underwater, and so forth. Right, which is horrible to imagine. And this is where uh, let's just remind people that you know alligator attacks do happen in Florida, and as we were alluding to earlier in the program, these often take the form of someone walking a small pet yeah. near the edge of a body of water. And it's understandable how this could happen. I mean, often these bodies of water are in the very neighborhoods where we live. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe they're in parks or something like that where we go to recreate. Mm-hmm. And to an alligator, your, you know, your small dog is really an enticing, enticing prospect. Yeah, I mean, it's basically prey, and and you know, gives off prey signals. You know, it's a four-legged animal. It's you know, moving at the right speed and. And so forth, and the alligator perceives it. You know, as something. If I eat a, a possum, then there's not much difference between that and a small dog. You know, so I'll go ahead and try and eat it. Um, so yeah, going after um, someone's pets is not uncommon. I've heard plenty of stories, even locally, of an alligator coming out of the water and running past a person and grabbing their dog and then pulling them into the water. So they do prefer the dogs over uh, or the pets over people. Um, but the other thing, you know, we talked about, you know, how can you pre- prevent 
these attacks, and it comes back to respect. But going, you know, I'm not going to go into water, which I, I can't see, um, you know, where there may be potential for a large alligator. And then particularly during the breeding season, maybe some of these attacks are just associated with territoriality. You know, um, they just don't want you in their territory. Or, as I mentioned, a female defending, you know, near her nest, you know, may be a cause. And that, and that may slide over into the animal feeling like then you're a prey item once you've been attacked and immobilized or injured uh, and so forth. So, so the, I mean, the best thing that somebody can do is just be aware, uh, watch your children, watch your pets, um, because it can happen fast. Yeah, and that's that's the thing. Just be just be aware and just think about what you're doing uh, when you're doing things on the water. You know, particularly the freshwater areas of uh, of the southeast, and just be aware there may be alligators. And think about: Do you need to take your dog on the canoeing trip? You know, in that particular area. Um, so I would be careful with that. Um, I have done in the past taken dogs, but I'd, now what I know, I would not do that. Um, I don't think it's a smart idea. So. Yeah, in in generally speaking. Um, how often do alligators need to eat? Is it an everyday thing, or are they like some reptiles that can eat a bit and it can hold them over for a long time? Well, that's that's true. I mean, they got they're a uh, as I mentioned, they have a lower meta. They're a, I shouldn't say cold blooded, but they're ectothermic. That is, derive heat from the outside. They have to bask and so forth. And they also, as a consequence, have a lower metabolic rate, and so they can eat a large prey prey item, and they probably could go three to six months, you know, without eating if they had to, or they can wow. eat small amounts of food, you know, often, um, but they don't have to eat very much at all. And that's one of the issues that we deal with in captivity. It's very easy to to get end up with obesity um, because I think as mammals, it's hard for us not to feed oh animals my. more frequently than, you know, a couple of weeks, every couple of weeks. I'll, I'll say here that I've never, ever considered the issue of alligator obesity, uh, but I guess it happens to the best of us. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's true a lot of the reptiles that we deal with, you know, pet reptiles, it's just very hard for people not to feed their animal. And, um, and I think some of the reptiles are geared to, you know, they'll eat food when it becomes available in the wild, you know, so they're not going to turn something back because I had a meal, you know, three or four days ago. They'll still they'll take it in if they can fit it. Um, but yeah, that's a, it can be an issue. But they they have the ability to last longer. I would say an alligator could probably live, you know, a year plus without eating. You know, no so, kidding. Yeah. That is amazing. Yeah, it's not something that you'd want them to have to do that. No, but yeah. no. Um, but this look, there's a reason that just as kind of a family of animals, they've <laughs> survived for a long time, uh-huh. uh, and the ability to. Eat to potentially live for about a year without eating uh, is that's a nice that's a nice talent. Uh, let's talk about the overall lifespan of these animals. How long can an American alligator live? Well, uh, that's the, that's a good question. But the problem is, is you know, you look at it. So people say a hundred years, but you know, who's going to be the observer of that? You know, we're going to have someone who's recording that. So some people say with some of the reptiles, can they, they slowly, continuously grow throughout life that they have a potential to live, you know, I'll just say not indefinitely, but even a longer period than that, you know. But usually people say 100, you know, maybe. Yeah. In, in, are most crocod- crocodilian sort of long-lived creatures? Yes, in general they are. But um, definitely in captivity I see in what I would consider old age changes with some of these old you know, animals. So they're not, as I said, they're not uh, protected from aging uh, because they can grow for a long period of time. But 
do the females have uh, a conclusion to their sort of breeding life? Yeah, well, no. I would say that they, you know, they certainly I've seen crocodilians and large reptiles like tortoises or you know, Galapagos tortoises that they can lay eggs until, you know, I know of a Galapagos tortoise, 90 years of age, fertile babies, you know, so, uh, and certainly the, some of the alligators, you know, the large alligators, um, yeah, they could probably, you know, I think there's, there really is no end to it unless their reproductive tract is damaged at some point or becomes infected. Yeah, uh, so it's really just these astonishing adaptations that mm-hmm. allow them to thrive in quite a few different environments, right, in different places around the world that are within the sort of range of temperatures that yep. they need, that that have the water that they need. Mm-hmm. But but absent kind of humans driving their numbers down, these are animals that are um, amazingly resilient. Yeah, they definitely are. They're not, um, but that's one of the things, you know, people look at them, okay, they must be very resilient, therefore, they, and they're, you know, they must have a very, they must be very tough with their physiology and immunology, and to some degree they are. They do have a, a very robust immune system, but they're not invincible, which is sort of, I get a little bit frustrated with people look at, they go, oh, look at the alligators, they must have a really great immune system, there must be something that we can get from that. And there are things, you know, maybe value in studying their immune function that maybe translates into drugs or other things that, you know, we could use for humans. But it doesn't mean that I've certainly seen them. They're certainly susceptible to bleeding out if they have, a, you know, if they get if someone pulls off a leg, another a crocodilian. Oh goodness! Or they can get, you know, they develop sepsis, et cetera. Yeah. So they're not totally invincible. I tell you what, let's take one more break, and when we come back, I want to talk about some of the potential uh, dangers uh, to alligators. And I want to remind listeners that this is Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. I'm Dana Hill. My guest today from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Daryl Hurd, and we'll be back with more right after this. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM, our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm Dana Hill, and I'm really happy you could tune in here on this September 15th, and I'm really happy to have Dr. Daryl Hurd with me here from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine, where we're talking today about alligators. And we left off, Dr. Hurd, we sort of alluded to some of the potential uh, health dangers and, and vulnerabilities of of alligators. And as you said, they're not invincible creatures. Well, no creature mm. really is. Um, but like as a species as a whole, are they susceptible to, I don't know, contagious disease? Do they spread disease amongst themselves? Well, yeah. I mean, to, to a certain degree, there are certainly d- d- diseases or path- pathogens have been identified that are are even specific to crocodilians. A good example of that is a uh, bacterial infection caused caused by Mycoplasma alligatoris, and this was described actually at St. Augustine Alligator Farm, uh, zoological park, by doctors Mary and Dan Brown, not related um, from the College of Veterinary Medicine. But you know, they've also been shown there was some uh, work and to show that alligators are susceptible to West Nile virus. And there were some disease um, outbreaks, most notably actually in alligator farms 
or true farms, um, but it seems that the wild alligators could be, you know, susceptible to um, infection and disease uh, from these organisms. Just the fact that a, there is a pathogen, pathogen doesn't mean necessarily disease. The animal may harbor it, but not necessarily um, produce disease. But there are certainly infectious diseases that are important to these animals. Um, there are certainly po uh, infectious diseases that may be or important to us. I mean, the most notable with reptiles is salmonella and certainly, you know, alligators. Any reptile, I, I assume, may ha potentially have that organism. So I know I don't, I don't eat alligator, but um, that would be something of concern if you were eating alligator meat. And then the other issue is um, just because they are an apex predator, they're at the top of the food chain, there are some environmental toxins that accumulate um, in these animals, most notably would be lead. Um, and there's also, there has been an issue in the past with mercury as well, um, accumulating in the tissues of these animals. Well, I wonder here then, uh, you say that the numbers of alligators have rebounded substantially mm -hmm. since uh, periods maybe a few decades ago. Uh, could that have something to do with the Clean Water Act and the fact that the, our, our environment, at least in terms of bodies of water, is substantially less polluted than it had been? Yeah, so certainly improvements in the habitat has contributed, I would think, now, along with obviously other protections from stopping people from hunting them or having regulated hunting yeah. of these animals. So, Yeah, um, and for a place that might have a lot of alligators, like you mentioned being a veterinarian um, at the St. Augustine Alligator Farm. Well, what, what sort of, you know, issues do those alligators have? Are you just kind of going in and doing checkups on alligators and just making, doing the well visits? Well, most of the, yeah, most of what we, what we do at St. Augustine Alligator Farm Zoological Park is more herd health, you know, just making sure that the overall group is, is doing well. But you know, I some, somewhat joke, you know, all animals are equal. There are some animals are more equal than others. So some uh, some get more veterinary attention uh, or more aggressive veterinary attention than, say, some of the others. But some of the things we deal with, not surprisingly, is uh, trauma, you know, uh, alligator on alligator. Um, and a lot of that is just that. But they, they do have the good ability to heal, you know. And so a lot of my work as veterinarians is actually assessing the wounds and just you know, seeing that they, they are going to, to heal. And there are some other animals, though, that we have to do further, more aggressive diagnostics. For example, uh, we frequently will bring animals over for a CAT scan. Um, it's the best way to evaluate a crocodilian. <laughs> so here's where I want to imagine the, the <laughs> staff at the veterinary clinic, and you pull up uh, with an alligator, and they're just like, oh, here we go. Just, just like an alligator. Uh, what kind of what kind of security do you have? What kind of protocols do you have to keep everybody safe? Because here's an animal that is now probably not happy to be there. Well, firstly, um, no one has a down face when we have a crocodilian come into the clinic. <laughs> so everyone's very excited at the College of Veterinary Medicine to be able to work with these animals, and I am included in that. Um, the fortunate thing with these animals, um, we have a good team out at the farm um, that are able to usually manual restraint capture and then we, for CAT scans, they can be secured to a radiolucent board, and they have. We actually have car straps or car seatbelt straps that are radiolucent, so the animals are tied down, um, and then the uh, the board and the animal fits into the alligator, uh, fits into the uh, the CAT scan very readily. So no we can kidding. just so we can just run them backwards and forwards most of the time. Um, totally awake. Um, yeah. So no, these animals are not under anesthesia or anything like that. Because, no. Yeah. That's. That's amazing. Okay, so, so, 
somebody then uh, has to kind of let loose the straps. Uh, does that person do that and quickly run away? Well, not so quickly, but they they can. Uh, it's not. They certainly loosen them in a certain sequence, yeah. and then let the animal get to be go back into its enclosure. Yeah. So when you're doing a CT scan on an alligator, what kind of things might you be looking for? Well, the reason it's really good to use a CT is that the, a lot of the crocodilians they have these ossified, calcified scales called osteoderms, and so if you take regular radiographs, they interfere because you only got one, two views basically. Um, but they're very good for evaluating particularly lung disease, so pneumonias. Um, we have an issue sometimes with uh, fungal pneumonia. Um, and then some other issues, you know, in the infectious diseases, looking at soft tissue structures, the reproductive tract um, in particular. And then maybe we've also had a few um, issues with the skulls um, of these animals. So the CAT scans are great. Great tool. When alligator, when there's alligator on alligator violence, uh, what form does that usually take? The injuries. Um, that not surprisingly, bite wounds, um, also fra- you know limb fractures um, and outright amputations. As I mentioned, you know I have seen animals. Unfortunately, will, they will bleed out and they will die um, if they're not attended to quickly. Not recently, I would not had that, and usually those things are avoided by being able to keep the animals and manage them the similar size and so forth. So they're actually pretty good at the, at the zoo to do that. So. Ah, uh, and so will these animals that are capable of healing, will they heal pretty all right on their own? Most of the time, yes. You know, sometimes we'll help with um, antibiotic therapy and so forth um, just to give them, uh, to help them knock back the bacterial numbers. Yeah. Um, but otherwise, yeah, they're very, very happy to heal and they're very good at healing in water. Uh, we've got just about a minute left. I mean, what are, what are some, what's something that you'd really like the audience to know about alligators that maybe there's, I don't know, misunderstandings or something that could just be a bit more clear? Well, I mean, I just, I mean, they're part of the, the environment in Florida. Um, they are a fa- fascinating part of the environment for me. Um, they do get um, diseases and so forth. Um, um, they have their own um, veterinary issues that we need to, to address when we're working with them, both in captivity and in the wild. Um, but they are an important part of the wetland environment uh, in Florida. Right. I mean, they are necessary in our ecosystem. They yes. pro- they they play an important role. And so here's where I would just say that uh, as frightening as they can be, and yes, we should treat them with respect, they can potentially be dangerous. Uh, let us consider that alligators have been here around uh, around here a lot longer than we have. Mm-hmm. And uh, they are, they're living things that, uh, that deserve uh, our respect. And the best thing that we can probably do for alligators is to just stay away from them. Just, yeah. yeah. Just give them some space. Well, uh, Daryl Hurd, thank you so much for coming in and talking to me. I love it. It's a great pleasure. It's been fun. Uh, Daryl Hurd's a veterinarian at the UF College of Veterinary Medicine, where I also want to thank Sarah Carey and Amanda Buckley for their help with the program. And thank all of you for listening. I'm so glad that you can join me these Fridays for Animal Airwaves Live. <laughs>